Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait What? A comics podcast for the Savage Critics website. We are back for episode 124 with Graham McMillan and I serving up a hearty, not quite two hours of comic book discussion broth. Our topics today include the new Man of Steel trailer and All Star Superman, the villains of Grant Morrison, Age of Ultron and Flashpoint, a spoiler heavy discussion of Star Trek Into Darkness, the glory that is Copra by Michelle Fief, and the terror that is Ant Comic by Michael DeForge, the difficulty of putting comic into comic books, subatomic party girls, and as ever, much, much more. Show notes are available over at SavageCritic.com. We always welcome your comments and questions at WaitWhatPodcast at gmail.com. And as always, we hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. Jeff Lester. Graham McMillan. How are you doing, sir? Sir, I'm I'm sure I'm doing a little bit better than you. How about yourself? <laughs> I'm doing a little bit worse than you, Jeff. <laughs> uh, I'm, I, as you might be able to tell in my voice, I've got a bit of a cold. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is the result of spending so much time on a plane in the last week. Yeah, yeah. I uh, l- listeners who may not know, uh, since you have last heard this podcast, I have been back to Scotland for a week. Uh, my, I have a new nephew. My sister has a, has a, a new uh, son. Hooray! And it, yeah, and I went to be the godfather at his christening. That's fantastic. Um, which was which was very nice and very fun. Unfortunately, it did mean a lot of time on plane. Mm-hmm. And at some point during the, I think I worked out it was something like twenty eight or twenty nine hours. I've been in flight in the last uh, two weeks. Uh, I have apparently got rather sick, <laughs> uh, and I'm also rather jet lagged. So I arrived back. We're recording on the Thursday. I arrived back uh, Tuesday night. And I have to tell you, yesterday I was working and it hit about this time of the afternoon and my brain just went. Yeah, I bet. My, my brain was just like, I'm checking out for the day. I don't even have work to do. Bye-bye. And something it should have taken me like an hour. It took me four. <laughs> oh, that's so rough. So yeah, that, that was fun. So if at any point uh, I seem super not with it, it's the jet lag. If any time you talk to me and you don't hear a response, it's because I put the microphone on mute so I can sneeze. <laughs> <laughs> or cough up lots of phlegm, which is the other thing. That's oh, man. But, so, yeah, so that was that's what happened during my trip. <laughs> mm. Well, that's what happened around the trip, but the that's trip itself was actually good. The, the trip itself was, was fun, yeah, the trip itself was good. Uh, it was my first time back in Scotland in years, as you know. Right. Uh, and it, I had that weird thing where I was simultaneously nostalgic mm-hmm. and feeling like whatever I would have been nostalgic for was not there, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you around, you're like, oh, I remember this, but it's nothing like I remember. Right. But it's so completely like I remember, and I'm not sure how I feel about this little remembering thing anymore. <laughs> any, any, uh, primo... ambivalent nostalgia. I have, yeah, that, ambivalent that... nostalgia, yeah. Did you any comic book related stuff? Well, I did go to uh, a couple of comic book stores in in Glasgow when I was there. I was there seeing my friend David, uh, mm-hmm. and we we basically we had lunch. Uh, David and and his girlfriend Carrie and, and myself had lunch, um, and then we wandered the city because I was like, you know, I I'd like to see. You know, I haven't been here for years. I I don't even remember if Kate and I got to Glasgow the last time I was in Scotland. Right. And I was like, I, I really want to wander around. I've not wandered Glasgow for, at this point, you know, eight or nine years. Mm-hmm. I just want to wander into the thing. So we go into a couple of comic stores. Uh, we, I went into the Glasgow Forbidden Planet. Ooh. Uh, and there's also a store called Plan B. Mm-hmm. 
which was very nice. Plan B, I have to say, I, I really liked a lot. But the thing I noticed in Forbidden Planet, well, two things. One, Forbidden Planet in Glasgow is half, uh, more than half, really, merchandise mm-hmm. and half comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really surprising to me because in Portland, it's it's mostly comics. The comic book stores are, yeah. if not 100% comics, then, you know, 90% comics and mm-hmm. merchandise is really kept to a minimum and I went to Forbidden Planet and I was like oh look at least half the store is toys mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, this is really weird to me that I, I'm not quite sure how to react to this <laughs> weird the comics and then I found the comics and realised that with the exchange rate mm-hmm. I would be paying like $5 for two ninety nine comic Oof. I didn't buy anything because the exchange rate and just the price over there are so unfriendly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that I was like you know I'm curious what happens in this week's Justice League of America's vibe, but not enough to pay five dollars for it. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. I mean, that, that's crazy. But the weird thing is, there's lots of reprint titles over there, mm-hmm. like like British publications. I mean, mm. of, of comics, uh, and they have this thing that I think is called Marvel Premiere, which are regular monthly hardcover collections. Wow, uh, for about ten dollars, which is about seventeen pounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, Try again, ten pounds, which is about seventeen dollars, <laughs> um, which seemed like a really good deal. Mm-hmm. Do you know For what I mean? Art covers, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Really recent Marvel stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The one that was out uh, when I was there was I want to say it was uh, during Mark Wade and and uh, Mike Ringo's Fantastic Four, mm. which you know it's not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe it is. I mean, it is now, I think. Yeah, but it's less than a decade, right? Or am I? Am I? It's it's right. I, I want to say it's on the cusp, right? Isn't it? It may actually be on the cusp. I want to say it was, that was closer to like 2006, 2007. But actually, no, I'm definitely wrong because 2006 yeah. was Civil War started. Civil War was, was post Wade and Marengo. Yeah, I want to yeah, say. So yeah, it might actually be ten years ago. Yeah, then. something like that. <clears throat> but yeah, the, so things like that, I was I was really interested in. I think are really good for price uh and there's a there's a justice league reprint comic there's a batman reprint comic and you know i'm always interested in that because that's what i was raised on mm-hmm. um but in terms of like did i buy any comics i did not buy any comics however mm-hmm. my other nephews so my the nephew nephew that was just born is my fourth nephew wow um the sister who had that baby has two other boys and then my other sister is one boy mm-hmm. uh, and so my nephews range in age from like four through twelve. Wow. Okay. I mean, obviously, three months through twelve, but mm-hmm. the one, the ones that who have existed and are reading right now, are <laughs> and you can sort of communicate with. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they're all into comics, and they're all into superhero comics. Really. And it's all through Comicsology. Wow. Really. Isn't that isn't that interesting? Wow. Holy that's, cow. That's, the the the, the six year old is reading his dad's comic. Mm. His dad comics because dad is you know like me was raised in 2080 and mm-hmm. so is very into like Grant Morrison is very into uh, Peter Milligan is very into that sort of thing and so uh, he was reading he was reading Morrison's Justice League oh see that's perfect and it is that's a really good like almost almost age appropriate I guess but you know it's, it's close yeah close enough really you know he's really enjoying it and um you know he was he was like and I but what was really exciting to me was their enthusiasm about it Mm. At the point where my sisters got really, really pissed off because here, here am I. I come over and I can talk to them about this stuff, right? But like their their parents don't, 
So, you know, I've got one of them being like, so Prometheus, Prometheus is like the anti-Batman, and he, he gets on the Justice League's watchtower, and, and I'm like, yeah, I remember. And the parents are just like, shut up. <laughs> shut up about Lex Luthor, just, just shut, stop talking, stop it, stop talking. <laughs> but no, it was, it was great, because they were so into it, and they were so excited. Wow, that's fantastic. And it me what you're saying about your niece, the whole, like, kids don't read comics. They clearly do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, they really do, um, yeah. and are pretty drawn to them. So it's it's yeah, really exactly. that thing of yeah, keeping keeping the availability there um, is great. Exactly, what it is. And so the twelve year old mm-hmm. Jamie, uh, the oldest nephew, uh, he's the one who's really into comicsology because he was given his dad's old iPhone when his dad got a new iPhone for work. Mm-hmm. So essentially, as like a, a small web-enabled device. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's uh, comics all but he can't buy anything. He can only get the free things. Oh man, because he's not got a credit card, right? right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really good because I have to say, I suspect that if his parents were like, "You could put it on our credit card," he would bankrupt them <laughs> <laughs> because his hunger for these things is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like but... he really is just like, "Oh my god!" You know, I read blah 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 and blah blah blah, and I have to know what happens later. And it's like, yeah, you know, there's there's hundreds of those comics. And he's like, really? That's great! <laughs> um, so what I did when I was over there is I bought him, because you can gift in comicsology. Yes. I gifted him Edison Rex, mm. the first issue of Edison Rex. Because I was like, I think I think you'd really like it. I think it's, it's you know, again, I think it's age appropriate. Right. But I think it's got enough of the retroness mm-hmm. that it will seem fresh to him in a way that, because he's reading like, uh, he at one point he was reading Jeff Johns Aquaman, mm. mm-hmm. and Barney was just like, "I don't, I like, I feel ambivalent about Aquaman, where it's like, I've ripped your arm off, <laughs> you were my brother, and I must kill you. I have flooded the world." <laughs> uh, and so I was like, you know, maybe he really did get strikes. And here's the sad thing: I didn't get to talk to him after he read it. <sighs> he was reading it on my last night there, and I didn't get to talk to him as to whether he liked it or not. So I owe him an email to be like. Was it good? Did you like it? Yeah, seriously. Should I give you more copies of Edison Rex? Oh man, uh, yeah, that's 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 such a soft spot for me because I'm just totally like, ah, oh, dude, we got to come up with a total great list of uh, stuff and then gift him, you know? But, well, no, t- totally right, right. But I really, I really did have that. I, I was like, you know, what is what is great? I would, I would want him to read. For example, the one that's reading uh, JLA, mm-hmm. uh, he really liked JLA Earth too. And so I was like, have you read Ulster Superman? Because he's also like, we saw the Superman trailer. Right. And he was like, Superman! And I was like, have you read Ulster Superman? And he was like, what's that? And it was just like, oh god, you've got to read Ulster Superman. Yeah. It's exactly. like Justice League. Like, you really, you'll love Ulster Superman. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'll have to email him, although I imagine, because, you know, I, I think you must have seen the news that they're going to be releasing that free digitally around the time of the Superman movie, which strikes yeah. me as a very smart move, I think. You know. Yes, although I have to be said, after I saw that yesterday, I was I went back and reread the first issue. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that's going to play for people. Yeah, the first issue is not. It's kind of the weakest. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. Actually, there's as much as there's stuff that I think is really lovely. To me, the second one, which I guess is sort of the real update of the paranoid Lois Lane Silver Age issue, uh-huh. uh, is great. You know, so. I, I think all the other issues are stronger than the first issue. Interesting, uh, and yeah, I, I'm I like I totally get the the you release issue one, mm-hmm. like of course you do. Right. But I think issue one is the wrong one if you're trying to be like, hey kids, 
Right. Superman comics. Like, this is the best series that ever, you know, this is the, this is the, as good as it gets. Mm-hmm. I think Rita read that issue, would be like, this is as good as it gets? Huh. <laughs> well, I don't know if they're really trying for as good as it gets as much as for the, maybe the idea that they, um, that they're, they're trying to look for something that's going to have enough of a similar tone, I guess, you know. The, the... I, I, do you think it will have a similar tone? I, I, I saw the new trailer yesterday. Mm, see, I still uh, haven't seen it. And it's I I think the Jeff John stuff is going to it's is much closer in tone, especially mm-hmm. to that trailer. The new trailer is very much I am Zoz and I am here to kick your ass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems uh, dark in a way that All Star Superman doesn't. Right. All Star Superman for me, one of the things I really like about it is that the threats are all I don't want to say noble threats. Mm-hmm. But they're all external threats that even with, even when you get the the Kryptonians, mm-hmm. they are somehow alien enough mm-hmm. that they're not assholes. I guess mm-hmm. is a really simple way of putting it. Right. There, there, there is a nobility to to them as threats and them as, as villains. And I think the only one that doesn't really fall into that is Luther. Hmm. And by the end, Luther is redeemed because he gets his cosmic consciousness when he gets Superman's powers. Right. You know. So there really is this. Uh, aspect of, and, and for that matter, even uh, Barrel and whatever his his the, the other Kryptonian's name is, mm-hmm. um, get redeemed at the end of their story as well because mm-hmm. they essentially become the 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 police in the Phantom Zone. Right. And so there really is this, this aspect of all of the villains or all of the threats are just trying to do the right thing, and if the right thing doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, everything can be redeemed. I guess is the point. Well, that that definitely does seem to be um, uh, uh, the keystone of of Morrison's Superman work, certainly. I, and then you see the trailer for the new movie, and it's literally uh, at one point uh, Fiora, who I think is the name of the of General Zod's second in command, mm-hmm. uh, tells Superman, and it, it's you know it's a great scene. I think in the movie it'll play off really well. She's essentially like, "You're never going to win for every one person you kill." Will kill you save will kill a million mm, mm-hmm. which is so dark <laughs> right it's like that person's just evil <laughs> you know you're not going to get to redeem that person you're mm. just not because that's just malicious in a way that I don't think definitely not All-Star Superman is but Morrison's writing isn't in general oh that's really funny actually because I think that maybe because I've been spending too much time camping out in his Batman universe mythos but it's all just like uh, each villain I has to be I, more and more over the top you know yeah i don't know i i totally see what you're saying mm-hmm. but maybe the delivery i don't know if, uh, uh morrison's villains in batman especially i mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, see have a campness to their to their grand evil schemes <laughs> at least until you get to leviathan mm-hmm. i think when you get to leviathan the, I, even Simon Hurt and, and all of that is there's an archness to it interesting that, that I, I or at least I felt there was until you get to Talia and Leviathan and Talia and Leviathan is the first time where it's like this is this is grim hmm hmm interesting I, um, I don't really feel that way weirdly enough because even stuff like Professor Pig for example starts off being seems like it's going to be camp and then kind of swerves out of it you know like I, I don't know I mean I, I see your point and I could just entirely be mistaken but 
you know, the thing that's ironic is, and maybe this will lead us into the discussion of, of Batman Incorporated number 11, is I feel that um, Batman Incorporated is sort of the one that seems the most outwardly arch. More from, in a lot of ways, from what Burnham brings to the art, but certainly, of course, by the end of issue 10, um, you know, there's almost no way to look at that last page without without feeling Morrison being super to me that's where it's like oh he's way more arch in that than I thought he was going for with uh, with essentially the black mask you know of of Batman R.I.P. See that's interesting because I, I agree that Batman's what Batman does is arch and camp, and there is a lightness to the tone, despite, you know, you have killed my son, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You know, when as soon as Batman's like, okay, I will literally turn into a bat and attack mm-hmm. you. Like, that, that's, that's a ridiculous idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a villain, as a threat, mm-hmm. Leviathan seems incredibly dark to me. Oh, and yeah. Much dark, much, but much darker than Simon Hurt, and much dark, even much darker than Professor Pig, hmm. because they are all, uh, to me, very informed by the melodrama mm-hmm. of other eras of Batman, mm-hmm. where I, you know, even Simon Hurt, who is, you know, when it eventually comes down to it, a unless I'm totally misunderstanding what Morrison was doing, he's the Omega sanction made into a person, mm-hmm. you know, and that that and the fact that his 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 existence basically seems to be I'm here to mess you up, Batman. Mm-hmm. See, like, gives it a, a, a. I don't want to say lightness because that's not the right way of, of saying it. But but it it gives it that out. See, I, yeah, I think you have. I think you see. The, yeah, I kind of feel like you see the melodrama as an out, like as as inherently sort of camp, I suppose. And I don't. I, I don't want to say comedic, but it it, it lightens. Mm-hmm. The, it lightens it, and Leviathan does not have that for me. Mm-hmm. Leviathan, I I find it really hard to get past the, essentially, not even weaponizing people, but turning people into weapons. Right. And if I, again, it sort of touches on the dark side thing. Uh, removing free will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The 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 only choice is to obey Leviathan and is to die for Leviathan, mm-hmm. and I, that is for me much 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 darker than any of the earlier threats or villains in Morrison's Batman. Mm. So that even when you have the I've turned myself into a bat, it feels like that is necessary to stop it just being this unspeakably grim, bleak thing. Mm. Uh, whereas before, I think you you had... Uh, you could do something like Batman R.I.P., which is theoretically a darker story. Because mm-hmm. there, there is no, you know... Here I am. I, you know, I'm turning myself into a bat because you have, you know, Batman breaking down, Batman essentially going insane on cosmic LSD or whatever the fuck was right. this or in our thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because Simon Hurt was was such a comic book idea, I guess, mm-hmm. as Leviathan, which I can't help reading as a real life idea. I can't help reading as a metaphor for terrorism and for that level of fanaticism yes well, I, I I just I just read that more seriously I read that more darkly see and that's that's my thing is, is I'm not sure um, 
how do I put it? I see your point, and I agree. I think actually the idea behind Leviathan, and in fact, where Morrison is kind of splashing around in the waters of has a lot to do with essentially um, control, modern control, I suppose, you know, it's, that's such a, that's such a big thing in this, in this last arc. And that's, it's a very serious idea and it's playing out in the fringes, you know, um, somewhat grimly, but you still also have close up panels of people with like, you know, with fire in their eyes or, you know, um, sort of beautiful, like, you know, puffed smoke ring valentines, like coming out of somebody's head or something like that. I mean, admittedly, that's all Burnham. I'm not sure that Morrison's necessarily spelling it out, but, but I, I just sort of think that, um, it's funny. I don't, I think, I think Batman Incorporated has, well, first off, I think, I think that, uh, Morrison is probably, of an, an incredibly manic depressive personality I, at least in his writing I don't necessarily know about in his life but he always sits down I, I feel like this idea of like I'm going to do this like super campy candy gloss and then there's always going to be some incredibly dark note you know that runs underneath it you know yeah yeah so I, I think in some ways it's a little harder for me to kind of Un- unpack, I suppose, the differences of those. I feel like Superman, anyway, is the closest one to where um, Morrison seems to have a very uh, staunch insistence that uh, Superman is uh, an incorruptible character and and sort of an incorruptible idea. And so I think that always sort of keeps things. Um. Uh, bending more toward the light I think when he does his stuff you know but but honestly I I think in the Batman Incorporated stuff you see all kinds of crazy you know well I mean all through his long Batman run you see stuff where it gets absolutely absurdly bleak just in a very melodramatic way perhaps but you know and then you also have stuff that's you know both absurd I mean he I think he really likes that dissonance just the fact that that the that man of bats issue is so unbelievably bleak and depressing, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, it is, it, you know, uh, which is, and it's very much about this, like, you know, kind of a really kind of silly idea and silly character. And he's really going to take the, that's, that seems precisely when Morrison is most motivated to, to go in for the, the kill. I agree. So I have not read issue 11. I have I didn't make it to the story yesterday. I was too busy being tired um, <laughs> what what am I missing because I've heard very mixed commentary about it well for one thing it's a fill-in issue so yeah which I was really surprised by yeah yeah I mean that kind of wasn't really it sounds like made clear to anyone it was like everyone was like oh hey we're getting another 13th issue of Batman it's going to be some sort of epilogue or something you know and Chris Burnham himself was kind of like yeah or something and what it sounds like is Hello. 
Hello. Okay, so that was weird. That that was completely, completely annoyingly weird. Uh, for listeners who are wondering what has just happened, uh, Jeff was just about to tell me about Batman Incorporated 11, and then he disappeared. And according to my computer, we were still connected, and I just couldn't hear Jeff. But according to Jeff's, we got disconnected. <laughs> then we tried to call each other back, and both of us just got static and, and weird... If anyone's actually seen the new Man of Steel trailer, the bit at the start before you actually realize what Zod is saying and it just sounds like static, that's what it sounded like. <laughs> it was very, very weird. Um, so, yeah, who knows what happens. But now we can hear each other again. That's right. But don't... So hooray! Hooray! And in the meantime, Jeff, I got an email with the second piece of that's big comic news that I can't make public. So when you and I have stopped recording, oh I have God. so much stuff to tell you. Ah. So much stuff. I'm so tempted to almost to tell you both these in, like, text while we're, to- while we're Don't talking. Don't do it. Don't do it. It will blow well, my it. mind and then we'll it talk will. about it. It will. And, and then it, yeah. And then it'll be terrible. But um, I will say this. One of the pieces of news is not going to be made public for, I think, at least a week. So it probably... It definitely won't be public by the time the podcast comes out. Otherwise, I'd talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um... But it's really soon after this podcast comes out, maybe even as soon as the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, let me check the calendar. What is what is today's date? Today is the 23rd, I believe. When's the 27th? The 27th, 27th is, is Monday. Monday. Right. Oh, so maybe. Uh, I'll still keep it in case it is, actually is available on Monday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is extremely, extremely relevant really? to Wait Wallace Nurse. Well, my goodness. Extremely relevant. It is something you and I have talked about more than once on this podcast. <gasps> waffle window? It's a no. waffle window. <laughs> it's a waffle window comic. Yeah. Oh my god, that would be the best. Waffle window the comic. It's uh you've you've just got me to spill the beans. It's no, it's Mike man. Mignola doing Waffle Window the comic. <laughs> uh drawn by James Kachalka. They've been wanting to work together for a really long time. <laughs> There's a pair. There's a pair indeed. Um but yeah, I have gossip to tell you, but it's not the point of why. I'm I know. Just, I'm, I'm like, oh man, Graham. Okay, actually, wasn't there? A, isn't there the Hellboy? Um, wasn't there that Hellboy strip where he he basically has has waffles? Like he's like, it's is it not pancakes. Is it pancakes or waffles? Yes, yeah, and it's, it's pancakes. and they're I'm like, sure if he eats pancakes. the pancakes, we are doomed. Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure it's pancakes. I okay. could be wrong. So, someone who is more of a Hellboy fan. Yeah. <laughs> Although I've been reading. Um, BRPD recently, which mm-hmm. I have not, I've never read before, I, uh, and, right. and I got the big three um, hardcovers at the library, which is essentially like everything from the start up until it's like uh, whatever the most. Hang on, I reach over and see what volume three sa- it says. It is everything I've read, everything from the start up to uh, Killing Ground, mm. which was published in two thousand seven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. And I, I want to talk about that later, but first, Batman Incorporated number 11. Yes, Batman Incorporated number 11 is written by Chris Burnham, and it is drawn by Jorge Lucas. Uh, with is a... it Jorge Lucas? I always read it as George Lucas, just for my Star Wars pun love. Yes, let's let's go with George Lucas then. Uh, but yes, no, I know. Like, once you say that, I'm like, oh shit, you're right. Um, it has a very, very Kirby-ish look in some ways uh, to the art. Sort of a more uh, how do I want to put it? Like, Actually, it looks almost more like Tom Scioli, frankly, uh, than it does Kirby, if you understand the distinction. 
yeah, everything I've ever seen from uh, Jorge Lucas trying to do Kirby before has always seemed like, what if Bob Layton tried to do Kirby? <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think so. This is actually um, a lot rougher, and, and rougher in the Tom Scioli way. In fact, there are bits and pieces of this that very much remind me of the of the Scioli stuff that he was doing for, um, gosh, is it Final Frontier? Uh just, just incredibly goofy. The especially the final supervillain is um, kind of fantastic for the the really dumb little thing they do. So, I mean, it's actually a really fun, super goofy issue. It actually seems a lot like the sort of thing. Actually, you know, it actually it also kind of looks a little bit like um, like some of Giffen's work on. Uh, Omac, like a, a little bit rougher, you know, but hmm. but kind of you know Kirby influenced and with real strong you know blacks, but also kind of I don't know how to skewed I suppose. Um, it's the Batman of Japan, and he teams up with Canary from Super Young Team uh, to take out a group of mean female motorcycle riders who look you know who are sort of a cross between. Uh, the Power Rangers and uh, I guess Common Rider, I guess you know the dude on the motorcycle. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it it's sort of a done in one. Uh, it's got lots of punching um, and device stuff, and it's um, very very chatty in a way that is uh, that makes me feel like oh yeah, Burnham's kind of he's. I've always thought he was kind of funny on Twitter or various interview things, uh, and so there's there's some wit to it. It also is sort of trying way too hard and needs to be like toned down. But I mean, apart from the fact that it's, you know, just kind of a brutal bait and switch, it was it was it was a fun fun issue, you know, for 2.99 it's the sort of like dumb fun comics that I enjoy reading. Um, you know, I just think that uh you know, in the run it, itself. It just, yeah, it seems like such a a weird thing to do because not only was the story at such a particular cliffhanger, mm-hmm. but the series has moved into such a particularly dark area. Yeah, exactly. That going, and now we're having a light one off. Yeah. It's yeah. like, really? I mean, yeah. I the, what you're describing, I almost wish there was something at the start. It being like, the dreaded deadline doom struck again. Totally. But... It, yeah, it's, it's totally what they need. Because just sort of by jumping into it, well, actually, you know, they do this... Um, like a, a channel change thing where you're sort of looking at Damien's grave and then there's like a channel switch and it cuts to Japan with like these uh, motorcycle riders running rampant all over everyone. Uh, and then literally the, the it, on the last page uh, as um, Hiro and Canary are like together, there's a channel switch again and it cuts back. It, it says, we now return you to your regularly scheduled programming and it's a close-up shot of Batman the the Batman man bat you know panel uh, that closed out 10 but it's but it's still kind of it's just abrupt and jangly and it's one of those things that honestly the sad part is is I'm like ah nostalgia like I remember when Marvel Comics was doing this like practically every other month in the 70s so there was a way in which I'm like oh hey that's great you know but at the same time, it also had a 
you know, I, I don't, I don't quite know what they're going to do. I, I hope at the very least they offer full returnability for. Um, well, well, was it actually solicited as, as Morrison? I, I genuinely don't know the answer to that question. Uh, that that makes two of us that don't know. I just know that there's. Uh, we did, I don't think that people were think were planning on getting this or getting such a radical departure from the storyline, if nothing else. So, I'm I'm looking it up. Yeah, Batman Incorporated issue seven. So, uh, yeah, but uh, you know, I have to I have to say, like, oh no, it it was it was officially uh, listed as Batman's world has been devastated by his war against Talia, but is he willing to give up on his own humanity? Yeah, that is completely not right. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what they said it was. Exactly, exactly. So, um. Yeah, uh, well, there you have it. So, Batman Incorporated number 11, fun, campy, definitely, I think, very, uh, with a different sense of camp or archness than, than what you have uh, suggested uh, Morrison is working has been working with even before Batman Incorporated. But let's say that it definitely seems like a much more dramatic t- tonal shift, I think, for you and others in that regard. So. Well, I, I'm I'm weirdly looking forward to it, but I also don't feel that bad for not being at the comic store, I guess. Yeah, well, totally. It's like, it's, it's a villain. Eh, yeah. What am I missing? Exactly. Yeah. I missed a disposable issue. That is not too hard. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I was uh, very interested to see the Batman Incorporated special being solicited for August. Oh, yeah, right. Is that the one with uh, basically the, everybody else? It's, yeah, it's the anthology of, basi- of shorts featuring the supporting characters in mm-hmm. the series. Uh, including Bad Cow by Dan DiDio and Ethan Van Skyver, which I'm going to stick my neck out and say is probably going to be fun. Sure. You can stick your neck out and say that. I mean, it seems like a safe bet. The sad part is it's not a slam dunk. I think Dan DiDio is generally... I know he wants to be funny, and there's times where he can do that well, but there's also times when he can't. You know what I mean? Like, weren't you the one who actually read me some of the dialogue from, what, Young Justice or something like that? Uh, I want to say I read you dialogue from The Outsiders. No, oh, it must have been The Outsiders. Maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, you read me stuff yeah, from yeah. The Outsiders that was his, that I was, that really was um, somebody who was convinced they were pretty funny. Who was if I didn't read you dialogue from um, The Phantom Stranger, because I got the, the collection of The Phantom Stranger at the library the other day. Oh, really? Uh, or the other week, I should say now. Uh, if I didn't read your dialogue from that, then I was falling down on the job because it's the the Phantom Stranger collection is the first six issues, I think. Um, and towards the end, for the last two, GM DeMatteis comes in a scripture. Oh, wow. Right? And you can tell. <laughs> you can tell the fucking page he comes in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, to be polite, Dandadio is not the greatest scripture when it comes to anything other than his self-aware comedy that he was doing in Omac. Right. Like, it was anything else Mm -hmm. he's somewhat leaden Mm -hmm. again being polite (laughs) Um, and don't get me wrong Demantis is not doing stellar work Mm -hmm. but it doesn't make you kind of want to throw the comic across the room (laughs) (laughs) kind of Dio has no anything approaching subtlety right so so you can imagine him plotting out and being like okay so on this page I need the Spectre to say that he is God's will, and the Phantom Stranger to say, but man should have free will. How am I going to do that? Wait, I've got it. Spectre, 
I am God's will <laughs> to find the treasure. But man has free will. Yeah, that'll do the job. I mean, it's, it's that <laughs> every single time. It's that on the nose. It's it's really crazy. It, it, people come in and just be like, I am just giving exposition. Question? <laughs> Answer. I am also giving exposition. And so it's, it's this incredibly blunt comic that has a weird charm because it's so blunt, if mm, that makes sense. Mm. You really are like, well, you know, I, I guess I know what he's trying to say because he's actually telling me. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, I had uh, I had a similar feeling this week actually cuz um uh this is something that that has kind of been in the back of my mind um uh, by because because I've been sort of shopping around for comics for my niece and digging through things and going toward what people have recommended uh you know I picked up some issues of Team Titans by the team of uh, Alt Baltazar and Franco who yes. also did Superman Family Adventures uh, and are the team that wrote uh, the first issue of the Green Team, which came out this week, which yes. I picked up. Um, and uh, they have a similar kind of thing for me in that I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, like everyone seems to dig their work and, and seems to think that it's actually pretty, that it's funny. And it always seems kind of, um, it never quite lands for me. You know, and so Green Team Number One was really interesting for me, and in that they're trying to take like kind of a brilliant to me goofy idea, uh, Simon-esque idea, and and update it, and it is so filled with like the the lamest form of exposition. Like literally, you just have a character who's there, like saying, "Hey, you must be." Says everything about the character, and it's like, "Are you interested in meeting?" says everything about that character. And it's like, well, you know, says everything about the situation that they're in. And it was just like, it went on for pages. And eventually you've got, you know, a threat that sort of breaks through literally on the last, I don't know, three or four pages. But no, I want to say, yeah, three pages. I take it back, five pages. It's not good. It's not good. Uh, and I was kind of surprised because I'm really like, you know, these are guys that, that, I know everyone digs and they get work and people were really excited that they were doing their Aya oh yeah comics as a as a separate thing but I have to say there's a certain man comedy to quote Steve Martin is not pretty I guess you know it is not it is not an easy thing to pull off and what I find fascinating is is that if you kind of blow if your comedy is not good it's actually probably potentially a sign that that it your other stuff might lack some chops as well, you know. But wasn't Teen Titans and Superman Family Adventures comedy? Yeah, they're both comedies, and they're both kind of highly acclaimed. But like, but di didn't you say you liked Superman Family Adventures? Am I misremembering? No, I think you're right. I think you are. You're on it because I was like, because I picked up an issue and I'm like, oh hey, it's kind of got. Uh, how do I put it? Uh, I was looking at it and I'm like, oh, this has. Um, it's like a big Silver Age adventure kind of thing done with like you know in in this really simple appealing kid style but having picked up a lot of them it it probably hurts that the 12th issue of superman family adventures was um suggests a very truncated ending but considering everything else that was being had been sort of set up and this is the other thing because i ended up dashing off and being obsessive compulsive pretty much bought the entire run to get to my niece 
I started looking through them, and I mean, you know, they're going to be fine, but let's just say that it's a good thing that she's three and easily baffled, because some of this stuff isn't really going to make a lot of sense to her anyway. Like, there's a lot of, like, quasi-in-jokes that appeal if you know modern DC continuity, and I think that's fine. In fact, I think I might have been exchanging emails with uh, uh, whatnot Matt Turrell about this, I think. But, um... Well, I, I always got the impression, and I say this as someone who read, got at most two issues of Tiny Titans and didn't read Superman Family Adventures, mm-hmm. that a lot of the acclaim came from relief that it was something that modern day fans could read and feel was nostalgic. Yeah. As opposed to what's actually legitimately good or worked for kids. Right. And I think a lot of that, the look at referencing a story I know really plays in there. Right. Well, there is. There is a, a bit of that, and I, I definitely tend to to ding it down, but I don't think it's just that in a way that, unfortunately, I would have to dig out my copies and, and, and really look at, but it's just a variety of... Uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff in it that I feel like... Um, you can understand how it would read, and read is the wrong word, but basically in, a, in in another medium, you know, like it's very easy to look at Superman Family Adventures and see some of the jokes and see how they would actually work if you were watching it on an animated series, complete with the sense of like weird buildup and then kind of goofy anticlimax. But a lot of times on the page, it just seems very sort of flat and... Uh, too easily pleased with itself, you know. Um, which, I mean, admittedly, I could be I, a. I could be sort of wrong. Like it just isn't really my tastes per se. But I'm really surprised that uh, picking up Green Team and being like so, like, oh, I could not. How do I put it? Like this has such a low bar for it to clear, and and really kind of didn't clear, and sort of stacked on the opposite, you know, coming hot on the heels of the movement also kind of left me with this sort of blucky feeling and you know that I just I'm not entirely sure is is related to um you know kind of what DC thinks is sort of hip and fresh now which seems to be some sort of like joshing republicanism I guess I don't know you know <laughs> so I, I I'm I'm really having a time bending my my head around it but let you know to return to my very clumsy segue, Dan DiDio on Batcow, I would say, is not a slam dunk, unfortunately. You know? Oh, no, I don't think it's a slam dunk. I just think that it is. I think Dan DiDio has uh, a reputation just for being an appalling writer, mm-hmm. which I think is undeserved. I think that he can be good if he works basically within comedy. Mm-hmm. And I think a Batcow sh- short like, is so in his wheelhouse that the odds of it being good are much higher than if, for example, someone was like, okay, we've given him a Red Hood miniseries. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right, right, exactly. Um, I, just, I just feel that, that there's a, a, a laziness mm-hmm. in people saying, oh, Dan DiDio's writing it, it's going to be shit. Right. And I, I don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think Omak proved proved the opposite. Oh, yeah. No, I, no, no, I think no. Omak exactly. proved that in the with the right collaborators and in the right genre yeah it's completely enjoyable mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah so i i just I, I was more standing up for for 
Daniel, who, let's face it, does not need anyone to stand up for him. Um, well, I think it's very sweet of you, I, Graham, I guess, actually. Yeah, exactly. I don't, I, well, when you say that, I'm now like, really? I shouldn't have said anything, should I? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be sweet to that deal. <laughs> well, but, you know, to be fair, there's kind of... Oh, no, you know, the interesting thing is, is there are comics that uh, I read that I'm mostly okay with but it could well be me you know we didn't we weren't we didn't podcast last week so i had last week's books to read uh in some cases i read a handful of them last week uh and some of them i just finally got around to reading this week after i went to the store yesterday and uh either they misfired or i'm just not quite you know there are those times where you're just like maybe it's me maybe i'm not right in the tractor beam of comics because i found myself kind of more often than not being kind of yeah, you know, like Batman and Robin number twenty, which came out, uh, I think last week. Um, I, again, I've not read. What it, this is another of the Robin isn't dead. I'm going to bring him back. Story, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. The whole like, were you the one who told me that the whole thing is sort of centered around the the five stages of grief or whatever? No, they're they're saying that in in press now. I saw. Uh, that, okay, so. yeah. So they sort of spilled yeah. it. So it's it's Batman and Red Hood, and it's. And oh, I've seen, I have read that one then. Yeah, oh, that's what I say. It was like last week or maybe even two weeks ago. That's yeah, it must have like been two weeks ago if I read it because I haven't Jesus been to, like I was I was away last week and right, so. right. Okay, well that's very bad. That means I must have picked it up that and Batman twenty and didn't get a chance to read them. Anyway, Batman and Robin twenty, uh, kind of you know this this is the book that has won me over sort of issue by issue to the point where I'm like yeah I'm super excited by it. I picked up you know uh, other back issues and stuff and and then ended up being kind of underwhelmed by it um although it was it was really funny because i had that that comic was sitting around in the kitchen for like ever or, and Edie picked it up and started flipping through it and i i think as some people may remember uh the thing that's fascinating uh, there's many interesting things about my wife but one of them is that she had a uh, boyfriend back in college who was pretty heavy into comic books. So she has actually read comics from the mid '80s, you know. That uh, and so every once in a while she'll see something and be like, "Oh wait, that looks totally familiar," you know. And we're looking at, I don't know, you know, Ginger Fox or something weird like that, you know. But so she's like picking up this issue and she's flipping through it and she's like. Wait, so why is everyone... Who's this Damien? And I'm like, oh, he's uh, Bruce Wayne's son, and he's dead now. And she's like, huh. And, and then she's, she's, <laughs> she's like looking at it, and she's like, wait a minute. Carrie Kelly? That's not the Carrie Kelly from, like, Frank Miller's, like, Dark Knight, is it? And I'm like, well, I'm like, well, yeah, kind of, same name. And she's like, holy shit! You know, and then <laughs> three pages later, she's like, wait a minute. Who's this guy Jason that she's that he's talking to? I'm like, oh, that's Jason Todd. And she's like, wait, I thought he was the dead Robin. And so <laughs> there was something actually pretty brilliant in watching my wife's severe case of cultural confusion to basically know enough to completely have this comic book fuck with her head, you know? Because she was just like, wait, now so the dead Robin's back and alive, but then the, there's like this new Robin I've never heard of, and then. Carrie, what the fuck is going on with this issue? And uh, and it's sad because on the one hand, I'm like, this is great, but after it got to like I don't know halfway through the book, she was like, yeah, this is kind of dull though. <laughs> and I was just like, ah, oh, what a shame. I mean, admittedly, it's not it's not you know Tomasi and Gleason I think have been doing good stuff, so I don't think that it's a um, 
commentary on all of their work, but I did find it was fascinating that she, apart from the six minutes of, oh, fan service, huh, this is really interesting and confusing, then she went on to like, eh, it's not for me. But admittedly... I feel like, I feel like there's a lesson about mainstream comics there. Jeff. Don't you think? I know, I know. I And that's it. I'm just kind of like, yeah, the larger context of things. Of Even when she's kind of filled in, she's like, oh, so there's this and that and this, but... You know, I mean, but admittedly, she, the comics that she reads or has read, you know, she read her share of, of superhero stuff, but I remember back in the 80s, you felt like you could give someone like, you know, The Dark Knight Returns or uh, Frank Miller's Daredevil, because there was more than just sort of punching to it, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So, I, so it makes sense that when it's just kind of like the lowest of low stakes, where Batman's like, come on, you and I have to go, like beat up some mercenaries and then punch each other, you know, because, you know, was just, I, I can't blame her for feeling like that was pretty low stakes. But, um, but yeah, like I said, I mean, I picked up, a, I was reading Green Team, didn't really do much for me. Uh, Batman issue 20, which I thought looked lovely, uh, didn't do much for me. The last couple of issues of Walking Dead, the, the conclusion to Crossed Badlands by Garth Ennis, um, it was all just kind of like, oh, Fatal, the latest issue of Fatal, 12, 12 Reasons to Die, issue number one, the third issue of Five Ghosts, where I really liked the first two issues. I just kind of had this thing of like, wow, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just not not in a comics mood this week, you know? What's really funny is, so I've read very few comics in the mm-hmm. last week, um, but I read I read one in particular yesterday uh, that, that I was just like... I mean, I went in hoping to like it, mm-hmm. and I ended up absolutely loving it, which is Subatomic Party Girls, which I just, I loved. Mm. I, I I really, uh, I I was, it was Josie and the Pussycats meets Scott Pilgrim for me. Right, right. And I was like, well, th- this is everything I want. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I like Subatomic Party Girls okay. In fact, I, I picked up three Monkey Brain books yesterday, uh, none of which I've actually... I'm sorry, none of which. I read Kinski, the first issue, by Gabriel Hardman, and I read Subatomic Party Girls. And uh, Hardman's Kinski looked great, and I thought it was kind of interesting. And I sort of enjoyed the, again, maybe this is ultra nostalgia, but between Subatomic Party Girls and it, and sort of Monkey Brain's whole production, I was kind of like this thing of like, wow, it really felt like reading comic books back in like... 1986, 1987, you know, there was that time where, uh, right after the black and white boom, before it, you know, collapsed in on itself, where there were a lot of people pushing stuff to market, and of course, some of it wasn't really ready for prime time, and and the glut ended up screwing things up, but there was also just a lot of really offbeat stuff, you know, that like, even though it wasn't quite there, there was such a wide range of it in various places that you could really enjoy it. And I really enjoyed the fact that I was able to go from reading Subatomic Party of Girls number one to Kinski number one in like three minutes and and enjoying the contrast, you know. Um, I just wish, unfortunately, Subatomic Party Girls uh, own... I don't know why. It, I, I Again, just cranky. I, I On the one hand, I, by the time you get to the last few pages with the uh, absurdly... Um, you know, glam rocky cat space pirate. Uh, I I think I, I I'm definitely on board to try another issue. Mm-hmm. But the the, the, the uh, like 
David Bowie-esque uh, space pirate. Did that not really remind you of Saga as well? Is that just me? No, I, I kind of had that same feeling, although it's tough because the design of it, um, you know, again, maybe just because I was in this nostalgic mood, I'm like, oh, yeah, this totally reminds me of, like, back when you had uh, Dennis Fujitaki doing Delgoda or um, Mike Casala doing, like, Captain Jack, you know, just kind of like, you know, or Critters, just, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, there's kind of this, like, right, people were sort of slowly easing our way back into that sort of animal-headed characterism. But, yeah, it somewhere between the the space setting and yeah her design i was like yeah it seems it it almost has an all ages saga feel to it which i think would be really interesting to see if that continues but mm-hmm. uh, i i i just really liked it i i thought that it was really fast moving mm-hmm. in a way that i really appreciated i i i feel that it covered a lot of plot real estate in mm-hmm. the first issue which is i mean it's relatively short it's like 16 pages or something yeah. um Without ever feeling too expositionary, mm-hmm. I got, I didn't really get a good sense of the band as characters as much as the band as a character. Yes, exactly. Uh, but at the same time, I'm. I also feel like it's. I got enough of everything else. I'm yeah. forgiving of that. I think if I'm still three issues from now, you know, being like, okay, there's the band, there's one who's blonde, and there's <laughs> what you know what I mean. Like right. that will that will be a problem then. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I really, I really liked it. It seemed very, it did seem very Scott Pilgrim esque mm-hmm. in its attitudes uh, towards music, but also towards like a gang, I guess. Yeah, 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 exactly. I, I don't know. I, 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 it really appealed to me. I, I really had a, a very strong reaction to it in a way that I don't think I really expected to. I, it, so yeah, I, I I was a big fan of it. It didn't make you think of Sugar Shock at all, because I did think of Sugar Shock. <laughs> no, I to be fair, I'd forgotten Sugar Shock even existed. <laughs> so that that's how much it didn't make me think of Sugar Shock. Interesting. I, I thought of that just because there was sort of a uh, uh, rock and roll band in space kind of angle there, I suppose. Um, no, it totally makes sense for you. To, like when yeah. you say it, I'm like, oh god, yeah, of course, Sugar oh, Shock. But right, yeah, I totally had forgotten Sugar Shock existed. <laughs> Well, in any event, I, I definitely thought that it was a huge step up from, say, Green Team Number 1 or, uh, sadly, 12 Reasons to Die, which kind of bummed me out because I was, I was such a, a goofy quasi-fan of Ghostface Killer and especially his latest oh, album. Oh, I, 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 I really I did not like 12 Reasons to Die at all. The comic? I, I thought that, yeah, yeah, I thought that was terrible comic. It was impressively bad, wasn't it? And I'm just like, ah, what a shame, because it's... Um... But realistically, do you think Ghostface Killer really had anything to do with that comic? Oh, Beyond no. maybe say something like, wouldn't it be great if we had a comic, and then leaving the room? <laughs> well, the thing Are, that... aren't, there, aren't there like five people writing it or something stupid like that? There, well, there's, it, there's, yeah, yeah. There's four credited writers, right? Well, you know what's great is the story has its story by has three writers on it, and then written by has two writers, one of whom is the third. So yeah, it basically is like created by Ghostface Killer and Adrian Young, and then it's story by Adrian Young, Che Garcia, and Matthew Rosenberg, and then it's written by Matthew Rosenberg and and Patrick Kinlan, and then 
it so yeah, has that's, that's five writers. Yeah, and 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 I think four four artists, if I understand correctly. Yeah, it's it's. And the sad thing is, it really reads like that. Many people are doing it. It reads more like a, you know, a game of exquisite corpse than a comic. <laughs> oh man! Even if it had been that, I think it would have been more interesting than than what came out, unfortunately, because it is one of those deals where it's um, where there's always one person who who is dropping the ball at any given point. So, like, the first part I thought was kind of fascinating in the way in which the art was inexpressive and not actually conveying enough of the story, but whereas the writing was kind of like a string of cliches, but I could almost see how it they could maybe connect if, you, if the art was... Because I felt like the... All of that was supposed to be like narration going on while the storytelling was happening, and then the second part of the story, just so bad, which is basically a second story, is awful. I mean, it really was an impressively bad comic, and it's such a shame because a, like I said, I I dug the album. I the producer who worked on it, you know, is one of the people who's cooking up the story for this. And also kind of the idea of, like, um, there was just sort of a very goofy, uh, over-the-top, but also, you know, like, camp, but a a camp melodrama, to keep coming back to apparently our topic of the day, uh, behind the 12 Reasons to Die album, that I was like, okay, this should be a slam dunk for comics. And instead, it was, like I said, there was only somebody who was there to drop the ball at one point or the other so it was kind of really a, a big misfire which is a shame you know it's always weird when you have those books that for whatever reason you don't realize how much you were sort of rooting for it to succeed until it just sort of totally crapped out in front of you yeah and then you're just left feeling dumb yeah pretty much like ooh, yeah particularly because i i spent some some money on it hey so although that actually doesn't ex- in any way describe our feelings um for Age of Ultron book eight, do you do you want to talk about the eighth issue of? Uh... You, you say that like I've read it, Jeff. I swear to God, the last issue I read was issue six. Really? I am, <sighs> I am so off the bandwagon for that comic. Wow. I, I am I am off the bandwagon that honestly I don't give a shit about Age of Ultron. Wow. Because last time we talked, you were kind of like, I got the impression you were going to keep reading it just so that we could sort of keep shaking our head at it. So I'm like, <laughs> no, I I I I really don't care. Here's the thing. In another world, mm-hmm. ironically, I would I would be picking more attention to Age of Ultron because it would have an impact. Mm-hmm. But Age of Ultron literally starts in an alternate universe, transforms into a different alternate universe midway through, and then we'll end up doing whatever. Yeah. Like, it's, it's literally a comic book event that exists to be ignored. It's fascinating. It's only in the sense of, like, you know, like, we're going to trump... Flashpoint on the pointlessness it is. sweepstakes. It, it, it really is, isn't it? It's like you know the problem with Flashpoint. It actually had the real Flash in it. So why don't we just take that out of the equation right now? <laughs> I'm really, I'm, I'm really impressed at how bad it is. And yet, one of the things that I thought would have been uh, interesting, since you mentioned it on Blog and Newsrama, is Colin Smith over at um, Too Busy Thinking About My Comics has wrote an essay on Age of Ultron number eight, and the part that I actually really loved is that he he says something along the lines of, it is too awful to be insincere, I guess. 
which I think is a really yeah, interesting. Yeah, essentially argues yeah they they really mean it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you don't you don't get you don't get this quality and type of comic by accident. You get this because they they really genuinely believe in this product. Yeah, yeah. Um, and let's see if we've got like one of those like money quotes since I'm opening up on the page. Um, yeah. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, it isn't about story or character or ingenuity or anything, but the most familiar and least challenging of beats and twists. Instead, it's a deeply uninspired and comfortingly enervating confection. Given the principles that inform its storytelling, it couldn't be anything else. At, yet, as Gore Vidal's wise old owl quite rightly declared, shit has its own integrity, and that's a quality that Age of Ultron 8 undoubtedly possesses. Who could believe that there was even a trace of cynicism in creators whose work is so consistently flaccid and bromidic? Uh, it is too purposeful in its incompetence to be anything other than an entirely sincere expression of a catastrophically devitalizing narrative paradigm. And, uh, I mean, like, on the one hand, ouch, but, uh, but I also, I, I have to say that I sort of feel like maybe, um, Smith has kind of put his finger on part of why, I want to say why it appeals. Yeah, why it appeals, and and also why I think so many uh, people, such as myself, end up sort of waving our hands, kind of giving a shit. I suppose you know, like why you know people are always like, okay, so look, it's just not for you. Why even bother reading it? Why bother looking at it? And I certainly agree with that. But being fortunate, quote unquote, fortunate enough to have people send me the codes. And being able to continue checking it out, I have to say I'm completely fascinated about it because it is such um because it's such a failure, and yet there is the idea of the idea you know trying to wrap your brain around like who could be reading this for anything other than sort of a train wreck sense, or even when you're reading but, but here's it, the it thing lots of people are it's yeah. selling astonishingly well well, I know that's it I mean that's the thing that I find kind of horrifying when they have those little figures or statistics that are like, oh hey, Brian Bendis has more comics in the top ten than than d c put together um the fact that they're these comics. For the most part, I mean, there's also an X Men book that I haven't read in a and Guardians, of Guardians of the Galaxy, and Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Which I haven't read after that point one issue, which I found kind of terrible. Yeah, um, you know, is there's kind of this idea of like, yeah, it's not just there. I really do have that feeling of like, yeah, I really do wonder. I can't imagine anyone looking back on Age of Ultron with anything like any sort of sense of nostalgia. You know, I mean, but I, I. I am really curious as to what the thinking was to to have it be meaningless because it, in the past Marvel's events have been this is the big one everything's been leading up to this and it you know and that worked mm-hmm. and it, it and it was the selling point as well mm-hmm. you know I've checked in on these books in the past but wait this is this is the end point holy shit I have to keep checking out which is why they continually did this is the end point Right, you know, mm-hmm. siege was the end point until all of a sudden, two years later, Avengers vs X Men is the end point. Right, I'm like, yeah, just go back further. Holy mm-hmm. shit, now this is really the end point. <laughs> um, and then you have Age of Ultron, which kind of sold itself as, hey, if you've been paying attention to Moon Knights, because you know, 
five people have been doing that. This is this is what it was all leading up to. But then it starts off, and it's in an alternate universe that uh, Tom Reaver and Brian Bendis are both like, no, this is really the real universe. It really is. I know we've killed off Thor, but this is the real universe. This definitely counts. I, we've Thor's definitely dead. I mean, seriously. Right. Whoa, wait, would we lie to you? And the weird thing was, everyone reading, everyone mm-hmm. reading was like, no, it's an alternate universe. Right. Yeah, and, no, I think that's kind of fascinating, yeah. Yeah, it really is. That That's the thing that really fascinates me, because no one believed that this was the universe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they changed it so that you've got this alternate universe where there's no Avengers, it's Defenders. Mm-hmm. And again, they're like, yeah, this is the universe now. And again, no one believes it. Yeah. And it, that is the like far more than the story. Mm-hmm. That is the interesting thing about Age of Ultron to me. Right. What was the thinking to have it all set in alternate universes and simultaneously try and pretend that it's not right. when no one is believing you? Right. Because well, there's something both weirdly valiant about you know going through with the charade when no one believes you, but also something kind of weirdly insulting. Well, of course. Because, because it's that classic, like, who are you going to believe, me or your lion eyes, that, that Marvel can't really seem... I mean, I feel like they've actually worked really hard to to pay dividends on this idea that sort of um, everything counts, you know, that they're like, this has to count. You have to make it matter in order for people. And so the whole well, Avengers and, and versus and X-Men really, thing. Really, but they're doing the same with Voltron, which is fascinating. Yes. So they're like, you know, this last issue. Oh, shit, this last issue. Holy fuck, things are going to pay off. We're going to bring Angela in, but that's just part of it. Right. And part of it's like... But how can any of it pay off? Yeah. How can any of it pay off? Yeah. Because everything up until that point w- will not have happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know? or, or even there's just, you know, there's this weird thing of like, honestly, even if we were, because uh, you haven't read the issue, but even if like uh, I've oh, been surrounded by a Marvel, it. I'm not even sure I remember well enough to spoil it, Graham. Like basically shit blows up for absolutely no reason. Like, there's this whole sort of cataclysm with New York that is actually the subject of, of Colin's page where he basically talks about... Oh, the helicarrier. Yeah, the helicarrier is crashing into one another and everything basically going to shit. Uh, and it it just doesn't matter. I mean, like, Morgana Le Fay's people all come in and attack and it's this big, you know, attack and Tony Stark is all flipped out and, and everything gets out of control. And even... I suppose it's possible that if we were six months into Marvel Now and Marvel Now's characters were all those characters, I might be kind of like, what? Holy shit! You know, but I just honestly feel like, again, it's one of those situations where Bendis has so bobbled the storytelling. Again, like, like the way that Hibbs put it, which made a lot of sense, is he's like, why would you call it Age of Ultron if you don't even have Ultron in the book? You know? Yeah, where is Ultron? He's not appeared once, right? I, I mean, like, we actually legitimately have not seen Ultron, and we're eight-tenths of the way into the series. Right, exactly. I mean, apart from the Ultrons that we see flying around that we're, that we're pretty aware are not, quote-unquote, the Ultron. And so I yeah. kind of had this weird, like, oh, um... Right, like, Bendis is trying to pay tribute. Like, he's trying to uh, uh, up the ante of sort of Age of Apocalypse, although... Warning: Jeff's talking even more out of his ass than before because I haven't actually read that series way back when. But you oh, know the whole. Yeah. 
You've not missed anything. Well, thank you. But... I, I actually, because I hadn't read it when it came out, and then, you know, I have Magic Library System here. Yes. So I was like, I'll read it, because everyone, you know, everyone always talks about it as a classic. Right. You know, and for a certain generation it is. But then you try and read it today, and your eyes will bleed. <laughs> it's 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 appalling in a whole new way. Really? Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible, Jeff. <laughs> like... Here's the thing. You and me are closer in uh, in age than uh, David Brothers, for example, right? Yes, right. And so David started reading X-Men with Jim Lee. Mm-hmm. And so for him, there's like a, a visual language yeah. that, that works in a way that it doesn't work for you and me. Exactly. So I can completely believe that David could read Age of, uh, uh, age of Apocalypse and be like, yeah, look at this. Whereas I'm reading, I'm just like, what? No, what the fuck? No, there's no storytelling here. Why is this page sideways? What? No. It, yeah, it's, it's appalling. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's what happens when people know all the tricks but don't know any of the rules. Right. For writing and art, I should say. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just terrible. Anyway, on you go. Oh, well, so I was just going to say, I assume that Bendis was kind of like like um, like imagine if you had Age of Apocalypse, but you spent four issues establishing how the Age of Apocalypse got set up. You know what I mean? I sort of feel like that's the kind of basic storytelling blunder that Bendis is trying to do with Age of Ultron. You know, was like kind of this thing of like, and even with him starting late, I mean, there's this idea that now that we're in this alternate timeline because we see what Wolverine you know, what Wolverine changed in order to make things better um, you're in this whole, you know I, I, again, I feel like Bendis is trying to, he's trying to do something very Morrisonian almost, I feel, in terms of like, he's trying to throw in lots of big ideas, but because he because he paces it like Bendis like, you can't tell what the big stuff is from the throwaway stuff, from the stuff that's supposed to mean something to the stuff that's just supposed to be kind of a, oh, I get that, that's kind of cute. You know what I mean? Like, it's all kind of this leaden sludge. Um, and I really, again, I'm just always impressed by kind of how bad Brian Bendis's storytelling skills have gotten over time. Uh, and ooh, Age of Ultron 8 seems to me to be like this huge sign of mm, how do I put it that 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 Marvel's running the risk I think by doing this and I could be wrong of losing its um, biggest asset which is kind of the no we say that this is going to mean something and it's going to mean something no we say that we're going to have a new beginning that everyone can jump onto and here's a new beginning that everyone can jump onto like it doesn't you know, with Marvel now, so I just... I... Oh, you see, here's the thing. I would almost agree with you if it wasn't for the fact that I think Marvel at this point can do whatever the fuck they want and everyone will forgive them. Well... I, I genuinely do. Me... I don't think Marvel can piss off the fan base. I don't... I How do I put this? I, I, I'm, very ta- I'm very torn on that because on the one hand, we're looking at a Marvel that is only less than a year ago was looking at its top seller being 60,000 copies, you know? Sure, but that's not the case anymore. They relaunched everything. They, Marvel knows exactly what it has to do mm-hmm. to stay on top, and it will do it. It will. It doesn't care, as a, as a corporate entity, Marvel does not care how many times it has to relaunch, relaunch Uncanny X-Men. It'll just keep doing it. Right. We're on, like, volume seven or something ridiculous now. Yeah. 
you know, it it just it's like okay, so the sales are going to drop because that's what sales do. But that's okay. Every two years we'll relaunch the book. Right. Exactly. Exactly. They're like we we've got a handle on this. We know what the we know yeah. what the marketplace I, I, needs. I don't I don't think Marvel can piss off the market anymore. Yeah. Well, I don't think because I part because of people like me who are just like, what are you going to do? Right. See, I pissing off sounds I think a little too strong. I just see people giving up. You know. Uh, I just see people like not not being like not even bothering to be like oh you curse you Marvel but just kind of being like uh, what the fuck am I doing this for you know because it sort of keeps happening over and over again until you feel like you're having your bottoming out slash breakthrough moment you know of like wow I spent you know because if you've bought Every issue of Age of Ultron, not even all of them. Well, if you do buy all of them, you're you've spent forty bucks on, on what, you know? It's it's and that's... on a, on an exciting series in which they restart continuity twice. Holy <laughs> shit! <laughs> you know the funny thing? It's a Legion of Superheroes strike. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Keith Giffen did this in his five years later run, mm. like in two issues. We'll see. That's it. In the space of two issues, uh, it's I don't know. I Age of Ultron bores me in everything other than the abstract. Now, right? Age of Ultron, however, had two highlights, which are the Al Ewing Avengers Assembles issues. Yeah, which were both spectacular. Mm-hmm. Were both just legitimately awesome. Yeah. Um, and I, especially the online reaction I've been seeing to uh, Pfizer becoming the new Captain Britain, I really hope that. Marvel adopts that mm-hmm. because she's a much more interesting character than Brian Braddock ever was. Right. Um, however, as much as I want them to do that, I would only want them to do that if they have a good writer doing it because otherwise it'll soon become she's a Muslim but she's Captain Britain and she's all about healing people except when she has to kick butt. And that would be, you know, <laughs> the first thing fucking yeah. imaginable. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, if Kieran Gillen wants to bring her to Young Avengers. I'll be very happy with that, you know. Right, right. I don't know. I but uh, otherwise, Age of Ultron. It it's it's fine, mm-hmm. but you know, it's it's doing exactly what it's supposed to. It's selling shitloads of comics. Yeah, I suppose you're right. I mean, I think that's the main thing. But I don't know. I I can't help but feel that this one is, uh, is kind of a, a misstep. Do you think that that actually? Mm, all of it lends credence to the possibility that this was supposed to be the event that was going to lead them into Marvel now, and then they fucked up the timing on it. And or do you think that that's just you know a, 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 an earlier rumor that has as much to do with wishful thinking as anything? I think it's an earlier rumor that has much to do with wishful thinking. I think it's incredibly obvious this was meant to be an entirely different event, and it was meant to come about two years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, I. I the fact that the prologue came out two years ago and right. then nothing happened is a really clear symbol that there that this was meant to have happened a while ago. Yeah. Uh, I think it's really obvious from the release schedule that they're trying to get it done as quickly as possible because it doesn't really fit into the overarching thing anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would love to know what the original ending was because it's quite clear that the way it's going now is not the way it was originally going to go. You think? Yeah, it it just I have no idea what the original ending was supposed to be, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's it's yeah. If nothing else, you can tell that Hitch did his pieces. I mean, Hitch said he finished drawing it two years ago, right? Right. Yeah. And then you have 
Pacheco and Peterson are not only drawing it now, but by the end of the last issue, there's five fucking artists in that book. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're Including speeding through a it. Massive chunk of mm-hmm. reprint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so at some point the deadline fell apart. So they must be drawing it contemporaneously. Yeah. Especially because it was three times a month and then it went down to two times a month as soon as you got the new art team on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it, it's it, it just seems like a, a, a disaster. But I, I, I would love to know the behind the scenes gossip on it. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Never, ever, 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 know. ever yeah. find it out. Yeah. Um, but quite clearly, whatever it has turned into was not what it was meant to be to begin with. Right. And it was probably meant to be an entirely different storyline, you know, mm-hmm. pre-Avengers versus X-Men. But I don't think, I don't believe the rumors that Avengers versus X-Men was like a rush job to replace it, though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in part because before I went away to Scotland, I, again from library, was reading the Avengers vs. X-Men hardcover. Uh-huh. That reads a lot better when you read it in a one Oh, yeah? Yeah, it reads infinitely more coherent than it did in single issues. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, and by infinitely more coherent, I'm still meaning like 50% coherence <laughs> as opposed to, you know, 25%. But yeah, it reads like it reads like a story with a beginning, middle, and end mm-hmm. in a way that it didn't back then. And in a way that I'm not sure it would have if it had been a rush job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I don't think that I don't think that Age of Ultron was really meant to be and then after Marvel Now, when Brian Bendis has moved on to something else, I mean, but Jonathan Hickman is the Avengers guy, we'll put Brian Bendis back in an Avengers crossover event, which isn't a crossover event, and it's going to have, like, you know, 22 different artists, and then we'll release it all in four months. What do you think? Because that just makes no fucking sense. <laughs> yeah, I know. I want to think that the way that Age of Ultron is coming out and the plot of Age of Ultron mm-hmm. is the way Marvel planned it. Mm-hmm. The only way that actually makes sense if you think somewhere along the way, Marvel forgot how to publish comics. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, oh, hey, what? I, I, huh. How do we do this again? Yeah, I... and, and they were like, you know, okay, so yeah, just put that out. And why don't we have a second event this year as well? Right. Exactly. You know, it, it just makes no fucking sense. It's so nonsensical that quite clearly something went wrong. Yeah. For me, I'm super curious why they didn't just drop it. Well, I, I'm almost willing to bet I, that I, they had to... I, yeah. not, they're making a fucking fortune. Well, I, I think that's... But, the thing that's terrifying but, is, is they've made such a such a silk purse out of a sow's ear. But I think that at some point they were looking down the barrel of like, we committed to Brian Hitch, you know, drawing this many pages of art. We can't just trash it. You know, even though everything's falling apart, like how are we going to? And who knows? Maybe that's what happened. Maybe at that point they were like, you know what? Let's make it even more insular and more of a bottle episode, so to speak. And then that way we don't we can sort of bring it out whenever we think that it's done or whatever, you know. Um, yeah. And then and then whatever came about as a result of of their plans for Infinity or whatever, they're like, you know what? We gotta. We got to get get through this now. We've got the space on our schedule to push this event. Let's push it. Um, but it's it's so bizarre, isn't it? It's, I mean, it started off feeling a bit like Final Crisis, mm-hmm. and now that it's finishing, it's like countdown to Final Crisis. <laughs> it's actually the way it's kind. Of, it feels more like DC's final challenge. 
to me. I love DC Challenge. Don't <laughs> miss DC Challenge. DC Challenge is a great comic. <laughs> well, listen, uh, should we jump real quick, come back, and then do another half hour of stuff? I know there's various things that we should talk about. There's at least two topics I've been meaning to talk to you about for like three weeks now. So What are they? Tell me. And uh, then we can do that as a tease. As a tease. Uh, I was hoping that we could talk about Copra Compendium. Um, I still not read it, but you could talk all you want about it. Damn no, no, it. I want I want you to talk about it. Um and then um I have been meaning to tell you and the world about how much I enjoyed Michael DeForge's uh Ant comic, which is uh online. If you haven't read it yet, Graham, it is exceptional. It is a brilliant, brilliant um alternative comic uh that I think I think is going to break possibly break even more huge once it um, once it gets into print, it's an astonishing piece of work. I, I I look forward to hearing about both of those. The one thing I want to talk about because you teased it on Twitter, and I was like, "Oh yes," when you said it, Star Trek. Oh great! Oh excellent! Okay, that you, sounds. You've good. seen the movie, right? Yes. Did you? Yes. Ah, fantastic. Okay. Well, there we have it. We've got a very we'll be right slide. back. Yeah, exactly. We're gonna have to make this quick because that's gonna be a lot of chat. So, uh, we'll talk to you guys in a second. Leicester, we're on. <laughs> yes, we are. Welcome back, Graham McMillan. We should Welcome just talk back, like Jeff this. Lester. <laughs> See how long we do that for. This My seems to be hurts a... already. <laughs> I was about to say, I have to stop now. <coughs> <laughs> oh, poor you. Okay, Star Trek Into Darkness. Um, so Graham, we Thank both saw that. That was yeah, a we thing. did. Uh, yeah, so, so I was really disappointed with it at the cinema and the more I thought about it the much more disappointed I got what mm. about you? Um, I have to say that uh, I was the same actually well how do I put it I was weirdly pleasantly bored like we went to go see it and um, it started up and I actually had hopes for seeing it and it was amazing for me like how in four months I was like in four months in four the first four minutes of the movie I was like oh this isn't going to be good like I don't know when that you had that that sense hit you not necessarily that it wasn't going to be good but it was like four minutes in that I was like I'm not going to like this oh I no I I got through the opening sequence mm-hmm. for have a better way of putting it uh, with a this is nice and throwaway this would make a you know a nice TV show mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um. But I think even before I saw the film, I knew I wouldn't like it. Mm. I think from from the way it was being promoted, I was like, this is definitely not my sort of thing. Right. But I think what really struck me when watching the film was just how ineptly put together it was. You know, I, it's so funny because I feel like it was um, – how do I put it? Like it, it really tried to serve so many masters and do so many things at once. Like I've yeah, never – Yeah, I failed – ended up failing all of them. Oh. Actually, that's not true. I think the set pieces 
work to set pieces. Yes, exactly. I think, I think the story was a fucking shambles. Yeah. And, and a shambles in a way that I don't think even when they were done, they realized what they'd done. No, no. There was some weird fact that they were, they were totally blind to, like, oh, we left this out. And I'm just not talking about the honest-to-God feeling of connecting with the characters, you know? Yeah, um, I, it's funny, the, the Scotty line where he says, I thought we were meant to be explorers, not a military organization. It's so on the nose for the film right. that it's not funny. Right, right, right. Well, and there is a lot of that. There is that idea of like, well, we've got a message, and which is a message that I generally agree with, but they hammered it so hard. And that, I think that was it. They had their to-do list was so extensive that in some cases it really was like, you know, put a check mark next to this thing that we want to accomplish. And it's literally by having one someone say like, but I thought we were explorers. And I'm like, okay, done. You know, yeah, like, we've uh, made okay. the point. They're explorers. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's it was a terrible, terrible film. They tried to do far too much. Yeah, um, far too much. And the problem is, well, first, there's a couple of things. It really reminded me of The Dark Knight mm-hmm. in that there's a story, and then they thought, well, that's not enough. We'll add in a completely separate story <laughs> that you just don't need. So The Dark Knight for me works as a really good film. If you basically finish it with the showdown for the Joker, if you right. get rid of all the Two Face stuff, right, the Dark Knight works much better for me as a film. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you had Star Trek Into Darkness, and basically you got rid of Khan. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, spoilers! I just realized. Oh yeah, spoilers, Shit. everyone. Yeah. Actually, you know, <laughs> let's, let's, let's say that if you got rid of John Harrison. Oh God, I'm gonna have to go back and edit this. Hey, so uh, let me tell you, actually, one of the reasons why I was uh, excited to see Star yeah, Trek Into Darkness. Spoiler warning in the thing. Yeah, that I accidentally spoiled the whole film. Well, or I could sort of slip snip that portion out. But l- yeah. let me tell you, actually, Graham, this is going to be really funny. I think because before we went and saw this movie. Edie was so excited to go see it. I mean, in the sense of she really likes Benedict Cumberbatch. And uh, there was something about watching his appearance on Letterman. She was like, I can't wait to see this. I really... Like, they showed that clip, the the clip that they showed on Letterman, which is basically Harrison in his little containment cell. You know, uh, just the way that he basically says, there are 72 reasons. And I'm doing yeah. it wrong, because the way he enunciates it, she was so excited. She's like, oh my god, 72. The way he enunciates <laughs> 72. But Cumberbatch is great. Oh, He's he great really is. with one of the most horrifically written yeah. generic bad guys in blockbuster cinemas, which is saying a lot. Yeah. yeah. But his performance is amazingly good. Yeah, he's he, he is fat, he's absolutely terrific and charismatic. In fact, I actually thought that the majority of the cast is really good and it does a great job at covering up how little there is to do or maybe even tricking you into caring about things, but you know, there's a lot of crying and running in that movie, you Yeah, know? The, to me the 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 actors were all good with the possible exception of um Zachary Quinto, who I oh. thought was really, really unconvincing. Interesting. Uh, especially his, and I'm, I've, I've already spoiled it, which you're going to edit out, so I'm not going to spoil this part. But yeah. the bit at the end. But nobody could we're, have carried that off. That, that totally. I know, I know, but he doesn't even try. Yeah. Jeff. Well. He's, he's, yeah, he's in a totally different, much worse movie at that point. Yeah. He's, he's left everyone else. But like, um, I think Carl Urban. 
consistently just makes me wish they came up with a real story for Bones. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because he's so good, and he was so good in the first film, and they do nothing with it. I thought he was actually pretty good. He was okay in the first film and great here. So it really was like kind of like... I mean, that's the thing. I walked out of that movie going like, yeah, you know what? Star Trek really does need to be a TV show. It needs to be a TV show with that cast. I would watch it and enjoy it. And there just wasn't... They barely had enough time for the interaction of everyone in the movie because they were jamming so much other stuff in and so badly because they they had to be like, okay, here's the reveal, here's the reveal's reversal, here's the reversal of the reversal, you know. And there's just, there's so much in there that they obviously are like, the fans will love this and they just, just fuck it up so badly that they don't. For example, there's no reason for the Klingons to be there at all. And the Klingons are wasted Mm -hmm. so badly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a really bad. Other than it's just going to be like this moment, like, ooh, we get to see the, see the clans, and then when we do, we're like, eh. I mean, and even again, there's a little bit of that, like again, the checklist of like, well, we got to come up with like a hero to, like she's got to do something, like the plot's really got to spin on her, like you know, like okay, let's let's come up with a dramatic translation scene, you know. So I, no, but again, like Ahura gets two moments like that because she then she has the dramatic translation scene, quote unquote, and then she has the bit at the end where yes, they're chasing down Ben's exactly. cover batch, mm-hmm. and she saves the day. Yes, exactly. No, I know exactly. So they were like, okay, we got to do, but how do I put it? I guess they were like, everybody gets two scenes then. Um, so let me tell you. So Edie incredibly excited about the, the, the movie. Um, me, not as much so. But So here's the weird thing. I, I could, I don't know, it's probably not worth describing all of it. Uh, but I will tell you, I actually woke up the morning we went to the movie being like, oh my god, I know what they're going to do. They faked us all out and this is going to be brilliant. Um, <laughs> they made the film look terrible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, 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 no. So, uh, can I tell you the weirdo theory that I came up with and how, basically? Yes, 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 yes. So, as I said, Edie, super excited about the movie all of a sudden. So, we're, like, going to go see it the next day. I go to bed. She comes to bed a little bit later, right? And I know that she's been probably doing... She does this thing. She goes out on the internet. She read something that completely spoils everything because, you know, she doesn't stay off of the internet for stuff that she's interested in. Um, And so it's the middle of the night. I wake up and Edie is talking in her sleep. And (laughs) Oh my God. Did Edie Edie spoil Star Trek in her sleep? I was convinced she had, Graham. I was convinced that Edie had read something and spoiled Star Trek into darkness in her sleep because... She said, while dead asleep, she said, they are the same person. And I went, holy shit, they've completely faked us out in Star Trek Into Darkness. They're not going to be doing Wrath of Khan with this next episode. They're going to be doing, I think it's called Wolf in the Fold? No, wait, which one is it? You know, so this is it. The I'm like, this is brilliant. They're going to do a callback. What they're going to do is John Harrison is not the character that we all think that he is. He is actually, they're, they're doing a riff off of that Star Trek episode where Jim Kirk gets split into two people, the mild one and the aggro one. But the aggro that, one isn't going to look like him. It's going to look like Benedict Cumberbatch. Which would be a great reveal. By the way, you have also now spoiled this film by mistake. Did I? How? By saying they're not doing Wrath of Khan. Damn it! Ah, shit! 
shit! You're, you're gonna have to put a spoiler warning because it's actually really hard to talk about this whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's just, yeah, full on spoiler. So he's con, but I actually, <laughs> I was convinced she talked in her sleep and said they're the same person, and I went, fuck, they're doing the episode and they're going to split it, and the thing that's going to be brilliant is Benedict Cumberbatch is going to basically be the evil side of Khan, that after you have... Evil Kirk, yeah. Yeah, Evil Kirk, yeah. And I was like, that would be kind of a brilliant... Like I will, And I was like, that's going to be great. And then I woke up the next morning, like we're standing in line to get tickets, and I'm like, but how would they even... They're not going to do that, are they? Shit. Like, I kind of had that thing of like, it seemed brilliant in the dead of night. And of course I asked Edie, and A, Edie had not spoiled herself on Star Trek Into Darkness and has no idea what I'm talking about. So I'm half convinced that although she was talking in her sleep, I was so asleep I didn't I misheard what she said. I basically dreamed what she said and came up with my whole theory as a result. Which is would have been a much better film. It would have well, I don't know if it would have been better because man, they've worked pretty hard to fuck that up. But uh you know, um but it, it at least it would have had like because the weird, they did such a good job with the swerve in the first Star Trek movie, and they fucked the swerve on the second Star Trek movie so it, it's badly. It's actually kind of amazing how mm-hmm. bad the second is compared with how good the first is. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying that in terms of, like, the first is a perfect film, but it really is a case of almost everything they did right in the first one, they did wrong in the second one. And I think part of it is, they were too, they were far too cautious in the second one. Yeah. When you have the scene with Kirk again listening to an old Beastie Boys song, Mm-hmm. It's one of those, oh shit, you, you, like that, I think that was the point where I was like, oh, this is all going to be a mess. Right, 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 right. Actually, you're, you're for... far too aware of, of what you're doing, especially that it's intergalactic. Right, right, Intergal- you're, you're totally right. Which I... has a Star Trek reference in the song. <laughs> oh, wow, you're right, yeah, yeah, from, like, a pinch on the neck from Mr. Spock, right, of course, duh. Um, yeah, that's, uh, uh... Yeah, I thought just that opening where the the big opening sequence where it's like all the characters are jumping around and shouting at each other and it's it's like a tribute to the old Star Trek, but it's but because I don't care about any of the characters, like it really is, it's a long time to have you in the movie and not really care about anyone. Like there's no real emotional investment. I mean there's literally a like, oh so and so is going to die or so and so is being chased by this. But in terms of this weird like, oh, we're in the middle of a big Star Trek rescue gym you know, action sequence, it was so wrong. And I that was the thing that really I found fascinating is is that the first movie which I did not have high expectations did it somehow allow me to connect emotionally with the characters and I spent the majority of this movie not really caring about anybody. I mean, it really did actually seem more because of uh, because of his acting and his charisma and the way that it's set up. Benedict Cumberbatch, until he takes his heel turn, um, actually seems more like the hero of the movie and, and like it's his movie and it's an interesting one. You know, yeah. Um, I, I said this on a piece for Wired that ended up not running, mm-hmm. but you noticed that it starts and ends with the Raiders of the Lost Ark riff, right? Uh, but, but, but I don't. Yes, the definitely they, with they, the, they, them in the warehouse. Yeah, at the end. Yeah, mm-hmm. but they st- it starts with them stealing an artifact and being chased by the savages who are shooting arrows at them, just yes. like at the start of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. I don't know what that is. I don't know why. Like, there's such an obvious shout out to a completely non uh, Star Trek film. Who knows? You know, fucking J.J. Abrams, maybe he's going for the geek trifecta. He's trying to get the uh, Indiana Jones uh, film franchise. franchise as well, you know? 
He's just he's basically assembling the Infinity Gauntlet of like nerd franchises. And then good job getting in a Marvel reference in there, Soldier. Thank you, thank you. I thought so too. <laughs> and then we'll just crush us all. So uh, yeah, so that was Star Trek Into Darkness. I actually and weirdly, I it sounds like you liked it lot far less than I did. I just, for whatever, because it was so pretty or whatever, and the actors were so committed, I wasn't actually bored, but I was utterly, utterly disengaged. I left the theater being like, oh, well, that wasn't very good, but the set pieces were fine, and the actors gave it their all. Right, exactly. And then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, but it was so horribly written. The end of the film is, guess what? We've cured all disease, including death. Right, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think they realize they've done that. That's mm-hmm, the thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think they realize they've actually said that in the film. Yeah, no, I... Jim, you're dead, but we synthesize magic blood. Yeah, exactly. It, by the way, the most obvious foreshadowing in the world. Oh, it was so what bad. What with that Tribble out of nowhere, and we've never mentioned Tribbles before? Well, I'm really curious about his blood, so I'm injecting this dead Tribble with his blood to see what happens. This dead Tribble. Jim, do you get that? <laughs> It's a dead triple, and I'm injecting it with his blood. I'm not saying you're going to die or anything, but if you die, I'm injecting a dead triple. With well, his I, I blood. mean, really, that's it's just blood. that. Like, I, why? Why are you like, hey, this is dead, I've got blood? It's not like he took infinite amounts of blood. Like, there's something really scary about, like, Leonard McCoy. He's like fucking Herbert West reanimator. He's like, I got some blood. What's dead around here I can shoot it into, you know? That's he's like. Listen, I've got to find out what's special about this blood. What can I do to do that? Should I, like, run it through my amazing technology? Oh, fucking no, I've got a dead triple. I've got a dead triple. Why not just put it in here, just in case it does something? I mean, you know, there's no way the blood can actually circulate what, with it being dead and all. But, you know, I'll just Let's inject it into happens. a pool there. and Right, exactly. How can, I've already had sex with it. Why not just shoot it up with some blood? <laughs> it's so hilariously shit. It's, it's yeah. really... Yeah, it was appalling. And the best part was... I said, I go and see. I actually see the film with my family in Scotland. Oh wow! Right, uh, in part because I saw it before the screenings, the press screenings in mm. America, because the press screenings were so late. Right. Um, and so I go and see it with my family, and I come out, and I, they were like, "What do you think?" And I was like, "Oh, I didn't like it." And they're like, "What? Do you, why not?" And I, was, I said everything that you said to you, and I was like, "And then there was the scene with the triple, which was so obvious." And they're like, "Oh, I didn't think so at all. I was so surprised when he did that." And I was just like. Yeah. Are you all stupid? There you go. <laughs> there you go. I mean, that's it. Dude, the worst part about that triple scene is it the movie opens with Benedict Cumberbatch's blood healing that girl. And then because people missed it in the testing or whatever, they did the triple thing. You know what I mean? They were like, ah. Like, everything that we think of as like, oh, that was too on the nose. Like, there's plenty of people who are like, oh, I get it now. You know what I mean? Like I'm it's kind so of like you had someone look at the camera and say, Benedict Cumberbatch's blood is magic, everyone. <laughs> and it brought Jim back to life. Do you get that? Do you get that? If not, I'll say it again. We'll bring it look, he's in a fucking cryostasis tube. We'll show you. Here he is. Yeah. Magic blood. You can't kill magic blood. You can shoot him with your phaser, but if Scotty does it it won't work. If Ahura does it, it'll work. Just because. Okay? Just just it just because like Scotty wasn't shooting hard enough. Ahura really <laughs> shoot him. 
Okay, magic blood. He was tired. He'd been running. Magic blood. Okay, he's frozen now. Everything's fine. It was terrible. It was so, so yeah, here's the thing. The screenings were really, really late, right? The, mm-hmm. uh, they did like two screenings in, I think there was one in New York and one in LA, like the Monday before. Mm-hmm. Um, and every other screening, press screening, was like three hours before it opened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I was talking to my friend Eric here in Portland. Uh, did I tell you this? And he was like, the film's going to be terrible. <laughs> and I was like, how do you know? And he's like, they only do this if the film's bad. Oh, they, if they think the film is going to be good, they would be showing you screenings. And he goes, this is how I know this. Do you know how many screenings the Fast and Furious 6 has in Portland alone? Mm-hmm. And I was like, how many? Seven. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. like, if they're doing seven press screenings, they know their film's going to be a hit. Yeah. If they're doing one press screening and it's three hours before the movie opens, yeah, that, that is that going, is the sign. That, yeah. That's a bad bad film. Yeah, they don't they don't want you to get your press review out in time, basically. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so it's what, totally. I, true. I have to tell you what um, the Mercury did, which was hilarious. Mm-hmm. Or at least I presume they did because I was out of the country when this happened. But this was their plan because it already opened in Europe. They were going to run a German review of the film oh, in its God. original German. <laughs> Fantastic! Oh. I have to tell you, anyone who's in Portland and doesn't pick up the Portland Mercury, you're really missing out. Uh, Eric Hendrickson is a fucking hilarious writer. He does some stuff for Wired as well. He does the Game of Thrones recaps with Laura. Mm-hmm. Um, but his movie stuff is just fucking hilarious. Oh, that is it's just really, brilliant. really funny, right? And he comes up with ideas like that for when he can't meet deadline mm-hmm. for the print version of the magazine. Oh, He'll just get a German thing and run it in German. Oh, that is so beautiful. That is really hilarious. Um, yeah, I... Oof, so, yeah, Star Trek Into Darkness. Man, that was not good. So... Hey, we've got 10 minutes left, Jeff. You should talk about Cobra and... Uh... Oh, yes, right. So, first off, everybody, yeah, if you get a chance, it's so funny, because I, for whatever reason, get Michelle Fief and Michael DeForge, like, totally confused with one another all the time, because their Cause, names are... Cause, but was it not DeForge who did Cobra and Fief did... Aunt or am I? Am no, I getting them mixed up? You have them mixed up. Yeah, it's okay. it's it's Michelle Fief who did Copra, uh, you, Copra com- Compendium. You guys should uh, uh, whatnots. You should try and get your hands on it. I know actually, there's a lot of whatnots who basically told us we should get our hands on it. Uh, Bergen Street Comics has come out with the first uh, three issues uh, in this compendium for twelve bucks, and I really want Graham to read it because it is. Uh, Fief, as I'm sure Graham knows, doing basically Suicide Squad analogs. Um, but then as time goes on, he throws in a bunch of other analogs of characters and things that he wants. And the thing that I, I sort of really wanted to talk to Graham is... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I've not bought any comics. I've been out in the country. I totally understand. I totally understand. But uh... you, Jeff <laughs> Is that essentially is is that Fief has this really amazing? It basically feels like Ditko by way of Frank Miller, um, and then run through Fief's own sensibilities. So you have a, and this is where I would feel pained to to give things away, but there is a Doctor Strange analog that pops up that's quite a surprise. Who in the midst of mystical com- uh, combat. Uh, Fief goes to town and basically tries to do 
21st century Ditko, as far as I can, I guess is the best way to put it, or, you know, sort of starts moving into the realms where joining the, the links between, you know, Miller and Ditko, but also sort of Mazzuchelli and Ditko. And so there's a lot of, there's a just an amazing um, amount of stuff that's being thrown in there. Uh, I don't quite know how to describe it, other than that, like I like I said, I think you would really like it, Graham, uh, if only for the the storytelling brio and watching something that is so wholeheartedly um, and unapologetically a superhero comic, and and more specifically, kind of a Suicide Squad uh, superhero comic, where you just have the freedom, sort of like with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, to put anyone on your Suicide Squad team that you want, even if that includes Doctor Strange, uh, is is actually pretty exciting, you know? Um, it's it's So it's such an enjoyable read. Uh, Michael DeForge's Ant Comic, which everyone go to michaeldeforge.wordpress.com and, and search for Ant Comic, um, is just a stunner. Um, it is a full... Uh, as far as I can tell, it's actually all up online. It is the story of um, several individuals in a colony, an ant colony that is sort of in the process of falling apart and ends up reading as just a weird mix between like an ultra modern novel and an ultra classic novel. Like I, because he ends up focusing on these different characters in the colony and seeing what happens to them. Um, it takes a lot of the sort of, um, like nihilism and laughs from somebody like a Klaus and mixes them with like a, you know, a completely utterly different, drawing sensibility to forge stuff in some cases um it's kind of all over the map like weirdly it's funny it reminded me some of it reminded me of um mark diana i, I want to say uh or also um uh god who's the guy who drew the dissolving teddy bears for like arcade comic uh what Rory, what's his name? Did you, did you ever read any of the issues of Arcade? Like, there was an underground cartoonist who drew these just amazing sort of naive stories. Sort of like, oh, and actually Mark Byer, Amy Amy and Jordan, actually seems like an influence on, on DeForge's Ant comic as well. Um, but uh, Rory, and I'm blocking on his last name, and unfortunately my internet, my, my for whatever reason, my internet is letting you and I talk, unless I've passed out and I'm hallucinating all of this, but is not actually letting me look up websites. That's because it's too busy letting you and I talk. Be okay with that, Jeff. Yeah, no, believe me, I really am. Um, uh, well, anyway, he was basically a guy, drew for arcade, died very young, drew lots of stories that were basically all sort of almost vaguely fairy tale-ish, like with like drawings of like that almost look like gingerbread men and teddy bears and stuff like that, except they would all begin sort of dissipating and falling apart and turning monstrous and stuff, you know, like just great, but really disturbing. Again, sort of like Mike Diana. Um, DeForge's Ant comic has all those influences, but also has the very modern influence of people feeling completely lost in their culture and their society um, 
and the way that the ant civilization and the way it's dissolving in some ways sort of mirrors kind of our worst fears about how today's culture is kind of going. Um, it's an extraordinary book. I, I, book. It's an extraordinary webcomic that's going to make an extraordinary book when Fenographics, I think, puts it. Or is it drawn in quarterly? Puts it out. It's astonishing. You can read the whole thing online, and it is um, such a such a punch in the bread basket, but you know, but is still incredibly inspiring, in part because of how incredibly well it's told and incredibly terrifying. It's great. Really good. Okay, and the website for that again is Michael DeForge at word dot wordpress dot com, and then look for Ant Comic on it. And uh, go to savagecritic dot com for show notes. I will definitely throw in a link there because it's it's um, it is being it somehow is uh, it is absolutely one hundred and ten percent worth checking out. High praise indeed. Indeed. Yeah, yes. So, uh, we have just a few minutes. Did you, anything, do you want to talk about, did, did you want to bring up? Of course, I mentioned, we, I, I boasted that we'd be talking about Al Ewing's The Fictional Man, but we haven't. Uh, I, I guess you've read it. I have. I did. And um, I found it really intriguing. I found it really, really um, impressive because it is sort of rough-edged and there are parts that... Like, weirdly, I felt like a lot of the overall stuff kind of screwed up, like, for me. Like, and I was going to talk with you, if we'd had more time, a little bit about the sort of challenges about likable and unlikable protagonists, I suppose. Um, and if that was my problem. Because the, part of the thing that's really fascinating about Ewing's The Fictional Man is is that the protagonist, who is a writer surrounded by... Um, a world in which fictional characters have been made real for various uh, reasons and the repercussions of that in life. The way that Ewing goes to so many fascinating places to, to take that and turn it into a metaphor um, uh, for the condition that the protagonist is going through. But because the pro I can't tell if it's because the protagonist was basically a turd or the way that he's a turd, I found it really hard to get into the book. And yet there are so many parts throughout the fictional man that are just absolutely, I mean, technically stunning, if nothing else. Uh, just simply astonishing. Um, I, 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 yeah, I, we'll have to talk about this next week because I did not have that problem. I, I found him a very unsympathetic... That's not true. I found him a very sympathetic turd. A sympathetic I, I, turd. I, I, found, I found him incredibly disagreeable, mm -hmm. but because of the way the book is... Oh, the way the story is told, I found it very easy to sympathize with him and all the mess that was his psychosis. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, um, we'll have so yeah, to talk I, about I, that. I feel like I had a very... Uh, similar and different experience. I think I, I took away the same level of this is not a nice guy. Mm -hmm. But I was okay with that in a weird way. Well, I think in I... part because the book never disguised the fact that he was not a nice guy. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. also he wasn't malicious as much as just uh, entirely lacking in self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I was very conflicted about it because I think it... Uh... Even if it's intended to be the point, and it probably, it, I mean, it, 
something very close to it is supposed to be the point. Um, the idea that the character, he's also much more cartoonish when he's, when the book starts, you know, and I think that was the thing that also had problems with it. It wasn't just that he was unlikable for me. It was that he was unlikable and not, yeah, not exceptionally realistic. So then I'm like, that made it kind of a double slog for me. But as time goes on, of course, um, you know, not only does he become more sympathetic, which makes it which makes it a little more uh, easier to tolerate, and becomes a more realistic character. But of course, you have other stuff going on in the book that, as those things play out, um, really are uh, exceptionally well done. So, um, so what we're saying, people. Is that next week we'll be talking about the fictional man, which gives you a week to read the book. That's right. Go grab the book. Uh, you can grab a copy, of course, off of, of Amazon or, uh, you know, for the Kindle, which is how I read it. But I'm sure that you can also, um, you know, find a copy at beloved bookstores near you. Um, I hope. And uh, yeah, and let's let's have a book club next time we meet. Yes. Uh, so that we're promising you a book club next time we meet people. Uh, we may go back and try the questions again. I mean, really, God knows at this point whether <laughs> whether that'll ever happen. Uh, I promise I will go to the comic book store because I will not be doing any more transatlantic trips between this episode and the next one. Uh, and hopefully I'll be over both my jet lag and my, as you can hear, slight sickness. Yes. Um, so yeah, next week, back to full power and with added book club. Yes. Can't That's all wait. I'm saying, people. Uh, I'm because my throat is killing me. I'm not going to sing us out this week. Jeff is Jeff. Applause for everyone. Yes, (laughs) all around.